You are about to listen to I Like To Movie Movie on the Roadside Network. I like to movie movie. I like to movie movie. I like to movie movie. You like to movie. I like to movie movie. I like to movie movie. I like to movie movie. You like to movie. Hello and welcome to another, our second episode of I Like to Movie Movie uh, with me, Garrett Smith. And me, Dan Scully. And you just listened to the <laughs> newly recorded theme. You've already heard this if you've listened to the first episode, uh, but uh, we just got done recording that theme song that you just heard. Uh, and boy, was it a joy. Yeah, apologize for the laughter up front because this is the first time that we're listening to it live yes. into the recording of the podcast. And it's marvelous that it took layering both mine and Garrett's voice over each other, as well as a third track, just to recreate the voice of the original whoever sings that Yeah, I don't song. know that guy's name. I don't but even know what that on. band is called. Yeah, they're the Move It Move It guys. Yeah. Yeah. But anywho, welcome back to, uh, I almost said Trailer Trash, <laughs> welcome back to I Like to Movie Movie, um, the show that is the antithesis of haters that hate on movies, um, almost because it seems they're afraid to like movies that are not ones that their image is fitting in with liking. Does that make yeah, sense? Yeah, that totally makes sense. Okay. Uh, the idea of I Like to Movie Movie uh, is we want to talk about movies that are movie movies, movies that uh, stories that could be that can only be told in this format and uh, or, or told exceptionally well in this format. Mm-hmm. Uh, the idea is to be positive about movies, uh, talk about movies we love, talk about movies that maybe aren't generally liked, but we think there's some value in. Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. Now, this one that we're going to talk about this week, I think is just... I, in my mind, generally just a loved movie. I mean, I don't know yet. Uh, well, I haven't met anyone tell. who disliked it. Yeah, I haven't either. This is actually probably one of the few times that we're going to be doing a current movie. Uh, yes. Most of this is uh, set in the classics, yep. or at least in the genre staples. But this, I believe, can become a classic. Yeah, and yeah. the movie we're referring to is the new comedy, This is the End. Yes, uh, a movie that we were both, you'll find out as we talk, big fans of. And the reason uh, we wanted to talk today is because uh, I, I think our, our general thesis on this movie is that yes it's a very funny movie they did a great job uh but with the conceit that they're playing themselves it's a bunch of actors comedians playing themselves Mm. uh that could just be the whole joke of the movie that could be the whole movie right there we could just it's an excuse to just do cameos and in jokes which admittedly would have been hilarious yes would have luckily the folks behind it uh they nipped a problem in the bud i think a lot of people when they saw that trailer at least had said to me you're like oh it just sounds like famous people showing how famous they are to us and i don't want to see that exactly i think they addressed that rather head-on and right away and the concept of the movie even does not forgive their celebrity behavior not at all and that's what's beautiful about it is this is a movie that had every excuse to go cheap and they went big and told a complete story they made a fucking movie they never forgot to make a movie um and a good one at that a really good movie actually it's beneficial that it's these people that we like and it's these people that we recognize and it's almost a testament to these characters essentially these actors all play a version of themselves in most movies yes and that's not to cheapen them, but they used it to great effect here. Yeah, yeah. So let's start. The very beginning of This is the End is this cameo-laden... Uh, let's start from the very beginning. The very, beginning. the very beginning is Jay Baruchel of Million Dollar Baby and Undeclared. He is coming to visit his friend Seth Rogen in Las Vegas, and they're going to have a Los weekend... Angeles. Las, Las Vegas, wow. <laughs> Los Angeles. I know a lot about this movie. Uh, Los Angeles, and they're going to have a weekend together and catch up on old times. Yes. Because it seems that they've grown a little bit apart. Yes. Uh, Jay, uh, as you find out throughout the movie, famously does not like L.A., hates being in L.A., doesn't like people in L.A., so he still lives up in Canada. Yes. So he comes down to visit Seth for a weekend and kind of catch up. Mm-hmm. 
and what I liked about the opening of the movie, the opening of the movie is literally just a tight shot on Seth Rogen's face. And the very first thing you hear is somebody going, hey, Seth Rogen. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. And both times, I've seen it twice now, because uh, it, it, it's definitely my favorite movie of the year so far. I, wanna, I actually want to start off that, that as way. well, yeah. Favorite movie of the year so far. Uh, and uh, both times I saw it, people in the audience were like, what? Did he just call him Seth Rogen? Like, people didn't even seem to know that the concept of the movie was they play themselves. That's in wild. Imagine going it. into the movie not knowing that. Exactly, yeah. And that, that, I, I'm jealous of that in a way. Me too. I think it would have been really wholly surprising. You know? Absolutely. But it was cool and and it made it like what do we love about Seth Rogen he's this lovable schlub yep. he almost seems like the anti-Hollywood yes he's not he's not your Tom Cruise or your Johnny Depp he's just this guy that seems to have beaten the system and and is just a regular normal stoner like the rest of us that has somehow gotten into it and they even kind of make that point in the movie where throughout the movie uh what, what happens throughout the movie is uh he and Jay just sort of have a deteriorating friendship mm-hmm. uh that is only amplified by the the further events in the movie but one of the things that um that I, that I liked about it that I, I thought they did well was Rogan does seem like this nice guy who is just now being welcomed welcomed into this like inner circle of Hollywood mm-hmm. quote unquote and that's sort of the whole struggle of the movie for him and Jay is Jay doesn't like these people that Rogan is is now becoming friends with and he thinks they're transforming Rogan from this nice guy that he knew in uh, in Canada to a more Hollywood LA version of himself, mm-hmm. uh, so they sort of use that actually as the plot line: is that Rogan is just this guy that we all like and are friends with, but he's slowly being pulled into the circle and being transformed by it. And the circle, of course, is people that we love. Yes. Um, and it's interesting how they play it because um, James Franco has had a hell of a past three, four years. Yes, he's been in everything. Um, all degrees of quality, but it's undeniable that he's very good at it. Yes. And he's become a little bit of this modern bohemian yeah. outside of movies where everyone knows, you know, he actually did something that I think is respectable. He made his money and went back to school, went yep. back to learn, but he's also become this kind of fey artist type. Yes. And whereas there's things that are to be commended about that, it can be laughable mm-hmm. and it does play into that whole like, oh, these celebrities think they're so artsy-fartsy when whatever... Um, but he does have the chops to back it up, and he very much plays into that character yes. in this. Uh, mo- most of the people, I would say, are playing into what our absolutely. stereotypes, the public, the internet stereotypes of them are. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I would say Jonah Hill is maybe the only one that plays a little outside of that. A little um, bit. But even so, he, he comes across... Uh, well, let's talk about Jonah Hill's character. What What's cool about him is he plays such a nice guy, yeah, such a super nice guy, and he really wants to involve uh, Jay into this social circle. And he's he's almost going over the top with niceness. Yes. And in a way, it's it's it it isn't genuine, right? Because he's really doing it just because he he loves being friends with Seth Rogen, and he knows that Jay's friendship is important to him. But at the same time, it's brilliant because to Jay, it reads that way. Yes. He they're all going. He's trying so hard. Why are you being a dick? And he's like, that's fake. Yeah. That's fake. And it, and it's great that it comes from a place of of love in a way. I've been there before where I've hung out with a friend who has a separate group of friends, and they posit the idea, let's all get together, and I've been resistant to it, and yeah. it can go either way. And to, to set the movie up based on that was very interesting to me. I agree. Because that's where it begins is, party at James Franco's house, come on, Jay, we'll do it. And Jay says, fine. He's reluctant, but he's but like... I'll go. And for the same reason, the, mm. the, what you were just talking about with Hill's character, he kind, it seems like he kind of goes, because he's like, all right, look, man, I, I, I do want to... Our friendship is important to me, and I want to give it a chance mm-hmm. to, to, you know, be a uh, flower a little bit. You know what I mean? Absolutely. And uh, he's like, you know, I guess I'll go and try and hang out with your friends and see, uh, 
see if we can make make it work. And it just immediately is like not good for Jay when they first not get to all. the door. James Franco opens the door and he goes, "Hey, Johnny, nice to see you." Yeah, I'll never, I'll never forget it again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I thought that was such a great idea to have Seth Rogen and James Franco. They they play off each other very well. We all saw Pineapple Express, but I love the idea that James Franco is not only obsessed with with Seth Rogen, but he's very obsessed right off the bat of the idea of sacrificing himself just yes. to save Seth Rogen in any situation imaginable. Yes. And what's funny to me about that is that plays very well into the James Franco character. He wants to be this artist, but why not die a hero? Yeah, you know, that's yeah, all. Yeah. That's part of the appeal. And so where it is genuine, there is a little bit of facetiousness there. Yes. And so they play it really well. I, I, and I think that's a testament to what makes this movie strong is they're not, they are characters. Yes. But the characters are really uh, believably interchanged with one another. But it has that, uh, that wink and a nod that, listen, we know we're celebrities. We are having fun with this. Yeah. But please have that fun at our expense which is beautiful absolutely and i actually think one of the strong suits of the movie is they didn't have to make that the joke of the movie this script is written in a way where they could have all been playing characters Mm -hmm. they easily could have given them fake names and and played them as they are and we would have said these are characters absolutely it would have been almost the same movie it it would have been almost the same movie and practically actually it would have been the same movie they could have given themselves fake names told the exact same story and we would have believe them as characters we wouldn't Absolutely. we wouldn't have even thought twice we would because With in that, their movies so often they kind of play a version of themselves Absolutely. so it, it it would have been easy to just call them dave and john and and frank and we same movie we would have believed same it would have been fine but, but it to adds do that, this yeah the well, that layer eliminates that it, the original party scene yes because what makes that party scene so funny is we see all of our favorite celebrities all hanging out all poking fun of, at themselves and then all dying in increasingly horrific <laughs> yes. and ridiculous ways as the result of the onset of the biblical apocalypse yes if you're not aware what the movie actually is about as it turns out you get about 20 minutes in the movie they're at this party of franco's and it's very funny you get to watch michael Sarah plays this really dickish version of himself he's mm-hmm. all coked out of his mind and having sex with random people around the house there's all these different little cameos and stuff it's a lot of fun and then Jay and Seth go to the corner store to pick up a snack and like a lighter or something like cigarettes. Mm. And blue beams of light come down from the sky, suck a bunch of people up into the sky, and then shit just starts exploding and lighting on fire. And it's immediate pandemonium in the streets. Yes. Immediate uh, pandemonium. In a really great sequence, I thought. It, it looked, it, you know what it reminded me of actually? Like Back to the Future. It looked like a, mm. a set of, uh, of a little square, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. And they're running around. It's clearly like real cars getting in accidents. And it plays like, like an obstacle course almost. Yes. It's And kudos to both Evan Goldberg and Seth Rogen because this is both of their directorial debuts. They've been uh, writing partners for a very long time. Yes. Uh, Super Bad, Pineapple Express, all that jazz. And... Um, and when I saw their name on the movie, I was like, okay, they wrote the movie, so it will be funny, mm. and they will film it. They will, exactly. Like, they, that was my assumption, creative. right, that they would film it. But There's a lot of, of creative film. And before we even get to the end, there are a few scenes that are just, you know, side montages. Yep. Um, there's a great scene where they all take the, the drugs together. Yes. And it, interestingly enough, uh, Gangnam Style, I believe, is the yes. song. Yes, yep, yep. But it's done in a way that they don't just film it. There's a lot of special effects. Yeah. Uh, and they use, I like what you said about set pieces. There, there was a lot of that that does remind me of Back to the Future. Yeah. And it reminds me of, uh, this is going to sound really weird, but that initial disaster scene reminded me a lot of Super 8. Oh, sure. Yeah, uh, totally. Because at that train sequence. The small convenience store, you too. You do get a good feeling of the geography of the yeah. scene. And whereas we could have just thrown things at uh, Seth and Jay as they run back to the party and try and figure out what the fuck they just saw. Yeah. Instead, it does play as this short, small adventure within the movie. 
And and the the terms of why they went is interesting too because it was Jay saying, "Listen, I want to go get a pack of smokes. Yep. Do you want to come with me?" And he's trying to pull Seth. He away wants to pull him away from the party. And Seth makes a comment of, "As soon as we are done smoking all of this weed yeah. together, I'll come with you." And uh, so it, it's already the first sign of that struggle between yes. the two friends. It's a little tug of war. And of course, when they leave and shit starts to go down. Jay sees something entirely different than Seth. Yes. And that furthers the wedge between them. When they get back to the party, Jay is vilified for saying, there's blue ble- beams of light in the sky. And then no one believes him and until then, the disaster. And Seth doesn't come to his aid because yeah. Seth claims he did not see well, the blue Well, he falls over in the right. thing. Right. They, they do um. show you that he, do- he may or may not have seen them. Mm. And even they do a little cut that I really like because seeing it twice there were little things that I noticed like this there's a slight cut on Rogan's face when they go Seth did you see these blue beams of light Mm. and he looks to Jay and then looks back at Franco and then looks back at Jay with a panicked look in his face and goes nah I I didn't see what he's talking about as if he's like he's like I know I saw something but I can tell I'm going to be put in this crazy camp with Jay if I say that I even think I saw something. Absolutely. So I'm not going to get on board with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that definitely sort of like really drives this wedge between them, which then as the biblical apocalypse then happens around this house. Which interestingly enough, I like that it's in Los Angeles because everyone's knee-jerk reaction, especially these celebrities that almost believe that they're intangible. Yes. I almost believe that they can't be hurt, just attributed to, it's just another earthquake. It's yep. just a little bigger and we can all just chill. And then the earth opens up uh, into what is clearly a pit to hell. Yep. And all of your favorite celebrities get swallowed by get this hole. swallowed up, and you get to watch it in its full glory. And what I like is there's, there's a great uh, pairing of celebrities you don't often see paired. Yes. Um, there's, before the, the apocalypse, there's a great scene between Jason Siegel and Kevin Hart. Yeah. And they both poke fun at themselves because Jason Siegel essentially is poking fun at how trite his sitcom can be, or just the genre of sitcoms. Yes. And Kevin Hart is playing the standard urban audience that just loves it. Yeah. You know, loves that, that you know, reactionary humor. Yeah. And so we have two extremely smart comics lampooning their own style in yes. a way that... that both pays respect to what they do because they both work very hard and are good at it. But also, you know, they admit that they are in a business in a way. And it's, it's very interesting. Well, they do something very funny with Paul Rudd, I think, <laughs> where he's not in the movie at all. And then this hole opens up in the earth in front of Franco's house. Everybody's panicking and running around. And then all of a sudden you see Paul Rudd from across the lawn come speeding across the lawn with like a bottle of wine in his hand. As he if had he's a, a just... bottle of wine and a box of fla- and a, a bouquet of flowers. Right, too. as if he's like just getting to the party. You yeah, know? Yeah. Uh, or maybe well, wasn't like even going to this party. He's from a clearly romantic date. Yeah. Because we all know Paul Rudd is this softy. Yeah. That we all love. He's the guy that would show up on a date with chocolates and flowers and exactly. wine. And, and so he, he really plays panicked. that like, what? <laughs> he comes panicked running across the lawn. And then all of a sudden crushes some woman's head with his heel just literally crushes it into the ground and this is where it's a movie movie because this is something that could have been played in so many ways and that's funny alone but we actually get to watch the head crush and eyeballs explode out of the face and then the camera just pans up to red and he's like oh no and he just keeps running keeps going because all bets are off yep and i think it's really cool they blindside you with a lot of gore in this um People get impaled. People get lit on fire. Mm-hmm. It doesn't pull any punches with the gore, but it's this weird, gleeful gore that, yes. since we know it's fake, 
we're watching some some real shit go down and yeah. it's but it's not real it's all no. it's all fun so we get past the party so the party happens everybody gets swallowed into the earth and it reduces our cast to what we think are five cast members so let's we've got Seth Rogen James Franco Jay Baruchel Craig Robinson who, in my opinion, stole the movie. I think he stole the movie, yeah. I can't believe we haven't uh, talked about him yet. Did we say Jonah Hill? And Jonah Hill. Jonah Hill, yes. Uh, And so they are not quite sure what happened. No one believes, Jay, that it's the biblical rapture. Mm. But they're quite certain whatever's happening outside is dangerous. Yeah, they should stay in. They should stay in. And then they do, and I forgot about this, actually, until I saw it a second time, they do a great big action uh, set piece again to convince them they should stay inside. Uh, They have this conversation, which I thought was so funny. Uh, Jonah Hill starts going like, oh, you know, because they first they start collecting their food. They're mm-hmm. like collecting the food and counting. Which is the a food. great montage. It's not just food. It's all types of supplies. Yes. Be it pornography, yes. a gun. Yes. There's a gun. There's a gun. Uh, and a Milky Way. And a Milky Way. And they they gather it all. And it's it's funny the way they do it. They gather mm-hmm. all the stuff and they're counting it. And Hill starts talking about how we probably don't have to survive that long anyway. It's not that big a deal. Mm-hmm. They're of course they're going to rescue us. We're the celebrities. Yeah, like, yeah, we'll yeah. get rescued first. We're the most important. Yeah. And so as they're talking about this, you start to hear a helicopter sound mm-hmm. from outside the house. And he's like, see. <laughs> Oh, yeah. That's them coming to rescue us. And then they do, and it was really well shot. They did it really well. They, they look out the windows and they see a helicopter flying over and they're like, yeah, see, here it comes. And then you suddenly realize it's actually falling mm-hmm. and it falls right outside the house. A pro- it explodes. A propeller comes through the window and smashes into the wall of James Franco's house right next it to Craig Robinson into the wall. and uh, I think Jonah Hill, like mm-hmm. two of them. And then they do this funny thing where, uh, 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 what's his name, Craig Robinson has like a cut on his finger. You've just watched like, oh, yeah. all this mayhem and murder. He's like, oh, fuck your house, Franco. Look at this cut <laughs> on my finger. Fuck your house. And that's where he stole it, too, because yeah. he's, he's arguably the one that you'd think would be toughest. Yes. And he plays such a big, soft Softy, baby. Yeah. And his explanation, of course, is that we're actors. We're coddled. Yeah. And what I love is what they initially thought would be their... their, their uh, what would rescue them is the fact that they're all celebrities right. and it turns out to be their biggest weakness Yes, because they've lived this coddled, pampered lifestyle and now when shit is real, they don't really know where to begin. They you don't know, know what where, the fuck to do. Where is your assistant at the end of the world? Yeah. And it's, uh, I forgot about that action sequence yeah. and, that's, and that's a great testament to uh, budgeting in a movie. Yes. When you have a movie like this that's written and directed by a bunch of friends, you can really... I imagine that they saved a lot on, on paying for their cast. Definitely. The movie you only know, cost like $31 million. Most of that had to go towards special effects. Definitely what was on the screen. And they did such a great job of marrying CGI with practical yes, effects. Yes, they did. And that goes to, you know, like that, that set piece at the beginning yep. that we said was very much, you know, the obstacle course, very Super yeah. 8-like. That is a set. Uh, you put that in a in a you know a Fast and Furious movie, and it's going to be a blue-screened... The entire thing yep. is blue-screened with some props here and there. They really created something real and tangible. Well, and you, you said something really smart about that sequence I wanted to touch on real quick, actually jumping back to it, uh, the geography of it. They mm-hmm. do a very, and it's, it's a testament to Rogan and Goldberg being like big movie fans and mm-hmm. knowing how to shoot stuff. They do like a very Hitchcock thing where it's one long tracking shot of Rogan and Jay walking through the little town square, making a left, and then walking up to the convenience store. Mm-hmm. And when they pass through the doors of the convenience store is when the camera finally cuts. So you get this very geographical uh, yeah, yeah. layout of the whole place they are. And that's and smart then, on a filmmaking perspective because you don't realize what they're doing. Exactly. And, and what they're actually doing important. is teaching us the geography of where they are so that mm-hmm. when they start to blow it up, we can actually we, we have a concept of where they are, what's exploding, and why And where it's they exploding. have to go. Exactly. That adds tension without... Um, like one of the big problems I had with Argo yes. um, was at the end they ratcheted up the tension by f- 
purposefully fucking with the dual timelines. Right. Where two events that don't happen simultaneously are played against each other to ratchet up a fake level of tension. Right. This, they don't have to do that. No. Simply because they gave us the, the course up front. You know, they gave us the level design, yep. and then we're sent back to, they fill it with monsters. And it's a, it's, I feel like Edgar Wright kind of perfected that trick. It Absolutely. is a Hitchcock trick, but he like perfected it in uh, Shaun of the Dead, especially. Mm-hmm. Sort of these long tracking shots to establish geography and then repeating oh, them. Oh, that opening, once again, going to the yep. convenience store. That was yep. brilliant. They and twisted I, it on its ear and three times. Exactly, and I think that sort of it was taken from that. Uh, mm-hmm. they, they repeat that tracking shot as they leave in their panic. And Side note, I think Edward, Ed, Edward, Edgar Wright... Uh, in another 10 years, his name will be much more household beyond oh just God, us yeah. nerds. That yeah. dude is the future of filmmaking. Absolutely. I'll absolutely say it. And his, his stamp is already indelible. Yes. It's, it's a, honestly, this is one of those movies that if Simon Pegg and Nick Frost were to pop up in a cameo, would have been completely at home. Yeah, absolutely. They are of that ilk, despite an ocean between us. They're yes. absolutely part of this. Absolutely. Mm. Uh, but So getting back to it, they have this exploding helicopter, which is a great, uh, very... You know, expensive but simple set piece to sort of be like, oh, we have to stay inside. Clearly, mm. this isn't what we thought. And it's funny. It's very it's funny. It's terrifying when it comes through yes. and almost impales somebody. But it's funny, too. And, and that's such a fine line to walk. They balance it so well throughout mm-hmm. this movie. They tell this horrific action story as the actual plot line that we're set in. Mm. It has an emotional through line through Jay and Seth's relationship. Uh, and then never forgets to be funny in this joke about them all playing themselves. Mm-hmm. It balances those three things so well. That's why we really wanted to talk about this, I think, is because it really... Uh, I don't see a lot of comedies anymore that balance these things as well as this Absolutely. does. And, and I think, too, when the plot gets moving in this, one yes. of my least favorite things about comedies is a lot of times it'll just be a plot shoehorned in. Mm-hmm. And so when that tension arises... It, it eliminates from the comedy of it. Yeah. And so you get to the point where you're like, all right, it's still funny, but they're clearly just doing this to finish a movie. This isn't like that. You're mm-hmm. invested in the story, but it's just filled with funny the whole way through. Yes. Uh, so the next element that gets introduced into the story <laughs> is who I would call the villain. Yeah, uh, he is essentially the villain. N- n- seeing it twice, he's the villain of the story. Uh, they Basically, the five of them figure out, like, okay, we have this many supplies, and, and we need to hole up. They use a bunch of Franco's artwork to, like, close up the windows and the doors, trap themselves inside. But not the Rogan. Not the Rogan. Don't take the Rogan. Don't take the Rogan. <laughs> uh, again, sacrificing himself yes. for the Rogan. That's a, a joke where there are dual paintings in James Franco's house. Each of them is a painted version of his name and Seth Rogen's name. And uh, I'll tell you a quick story from listening to a bunch of interviews with everybody over the past couple weeks that made the movie. Those are actual James Franco originals. They oh asked my God. Franco. Of course they were. They told Franco, they were like, can you make a bunch of artwork to populate your house set in the movie? Mm. And he was like, absolutely. They bought him a bunch of materials. He's like, make it. Made. Yeah. And then when they got there, all those artworks you see are original Franco's. I did not know and, that. That's interesting. And the interesting. two that, that uh, Rogen thought were the funniest where he literally just made paintings of their names, James Franco and Seth Rogen. <laughs> and that's so great too because if i had a good friend if i let's yes. from jay's eyes yeah and i was dreading this party yes. did not want to go in i just wanted to be with my boy seth yep. and then i walk in and the owner of the house <laughs> has his name and my friend seth's name uh, uh, painted but painted <laughs> and, and the centerpiece of his house yes. too the yes. absolute centerpiece of his house based around that that he shows with this religious reverence yes. towards his own friendship with Seth that would irk me so much yeah. and as an audience member it's hilarious yes. but as something that drives the plot that's some very deep shit based it's really on smart. such a goofy goofy joke yeah. you know it's really not a throwaway yeah. and that, that's and once again that's why we're here the, that's the why we're talking about this one easily been throwaways yep. and it's not and yeah. it's and what I really like too is that it, it, it spoiler alert it is the biblical apocalypse yeah that's so, uh 
you know, this is the way that the biblical apocalypse happens in the lore of this movie is those who are good are saved yep. and those who aren't aren't. The, and I, not a single person from this party is essentially saved. No one. So in one fell swoop of just decent plot writing, they've gone and condemned all of Hollywood's debaucherous ways. Yes. And it's brilliant. It's brilliant. There's, uh, and it is one of the, the great things about the movie is I feel like that could be a very divisive concept for a comedy. Absolutely. The movie presupposes that there is a heaven, there is a hell, there's a God and there's a Satan. God will pass judgment on those that are good and those that are evil and will leave those that are evil behind. Mm -hmm. uh, and With the, monsters. Yes. And the question of the movie becomes, is there any redemption to be had mm. uh, once the apocalypse has taken place? Now, we've all heard of the term. There's, there's an episode in most TV series, a trapped in the closet episode. Yes. And what that usually is, is for some reason two characters that are opposite one another are trapped in a safe or they're trapped yep. in and they're there overnight and then of course they learn to respect each other love each other and then they have themselves a friendship and so this is that set up to an even bigger degree because mm -hmm. it's five people that all feel differently about one another, that all have different connections, essentially being in this huge concept trapped in a closet episode. Yes. And so Danny McBride, as you say, enters as the villain. And what he brings to this is, you know, we can't have a whole movie of just disaster things happening and them reacting to it. You need to have a, a, a spark plug thrown in there, a wild card. Yes. And he is the wild card. And the most interesting thing they do with his introduction is, He's apparently slept through the whole thing. Yes. And he's just there to continue partying the next we day. We don't even know that he was at the party as yes. an audience. Uh, Which is another interesting thing because is he or wasn't he invited? Right. You know, and so it's, it, it shows without saying out front what their relationship with McBride is. Yes. And if these are caricatures of who they are in real life, like, I do not want to hang out with Danny McBride. No. He's a fucking psychopath. He, I mean, he almost plays an even more amplified version of Kenny Powers in this. Oh, yeah, absolutely. He is just completely selfish, mm -hmm. and uh, he has no interest in anyone's well-being other than his own. Mm -hmm. uh, but the way they play it is that, technically, that's not really how it starts. Mm -hmm. He wakes up, apparently not realizing the apocalypse happened, and they do this great slow motion intro to him. I believe he's introed by his own stream of piss hitting the toilet yes. while his foot is on the seat. Yes, and which I is such a Danny McBride peeing like, position. It, it's to like a Cypress Hill song or a KRS-One song. I forget. It's... Uh, it, You're right. It's to a great like hip hop song, and they they do this like slow motion him like dancing his way through the house, smoking weed, and then he gets downstairs, that's his life. sees all the food they've collected, not knowing why it was collected, and makes them a big breakfast. Absolutely. Technically, it's from the good. This is part of what's interesting about it, seeing it twice. He's the villain of the movie, but it's because he feels like they vilify him. Absolutely, he feels like they immediately vilify him, so he just starts playing that part mm -hmm. because the first thing he does is make them all breakfast, mm -hmm. thinking that they will appreciate that he made this big breakfast for and everybody. And I really like the idea, too, that when he makes the breakfast, their first reaction is get angry, and then it's, well, let's divvy up the prepared food. Yes, yeah. Let's divvy this up because we have to do it. Yeah. And it's... Uh, it's What's funny is they really are not equipped for survival at right. all. They are these celebrities, and they're still banking on the fact that this is all just a, a temporary thing. Yeah. And pretty soon our golden lives will be back to normal. We just got to wait it out. It's essentially what they do is they set you up with the five characters that are sort of their own powder keg mm -hmm. that could at any time explode, but probably left to just the five of them and their own devices would have ended in them starving in the house. Mm -hmm. So then they introduce the sixth person who's the fuse for the powder keg. That means they are not even going to survive as long as starving. Mm -hmm. They're probably going to survive a like, He's much less amount of time. He's going to expedite their failure. Yeah. 
But what's beautiful about it is at this point they cut their losses yes. and decide let's just let's just continue the party. Yep. Let's have fun because this is all just a thing, you know, we can pay for this house to be fixed. They're once sort the of convinced inside. Jay is the only one that's convinced something really wrong is happening. Everyone mm. else seems to be in denial about what's happening mm. and thinks that there will be an out eventually. There's a great Joe Rogan bit where he was talking about how long it would... Like, we just rely on the smart people. Right. And he says, you know, if you were trapped on a desert island with nothing, how long before you could send me an email? But he poses a question that's, when the power goes off, what do you do? Yeah. I know what I do. I wait. Yeah. He's like, we, it would take three months if all the power went off for everyone to go, well, I guess it's not coming back uh-huh. on. Yep. And that's their mentality is yeah. just the other, you know, the other people will fix it. Yeah. It's up to them. We just got to wait it out. Yeah. And um, this, this leads to one of my favorite sequences. You might have seen it in the promotional material. They decide to, and you use this term to borrow from Be Kind Rewind, they do a sweeted version yes. of Pineapple Express 2. Yes. And from interviews, it is based on the original concept for Pineapple Express 2. Blood and I think red. The, I blood red. <laughs> the concept is served so much better in this format. Yes. Because... A lot of people will be lost on another Pineapple Express that really is a standalone movie. Yeah. You don't want to do a hangover where you just kick it until it's no. dead. Yeah. And so this was a great way of putting those concepts out there, selling it on We Love These Celebrities and They Are Themselves, still effectively, I guess, in that way, making it canon to Pineapple yes, Express, yes. but just doing it as a very throwaway funny thing, to which there's an even deeper joke that none of these people, they're, they're just saying, hey, you know, we'll just do this to pass the time. Yeah. I'm not going to call my mom. I'm just going to make a video. That is a really excellent point that I didn't think about until I heard somebody else bring it up on another podcast. No one in this movie ever mm. talks about any family mm-hmm. that they might have that they should be trying to figure out if they're alive or not. They literally, it's just these six characters seem to be totally devoid of any kind of connection oh, to the outside world. They're almost awful people. They're yeah. in a bubble. They yes. really are in a bubble. So much of a bubble, they never talk. Like Craig Robinson, I'm pretty sure, has kids and a family. You know right. what I mean? Seth Rogen's like, married. Yeah, and uh, they never talk about any of those people, mm-hmm. uh, which I just thought was like an interesting choice. And, and it and makes great. It actually makes sense because I think if you were to talk about that, suddenly there would be stakes to this that would make what's happening a lot you less funny. Yeah, you know? absolutely. Um, so they just avoid talking about it altogether. That was a smart itself, writing choice. In itself, it does become kind of a joke if you explore it yes. because they are selfish. They're so They don't care about their family. They just better survive this exactly. so that they can go make more movies. Exactly. Uh, there was a, when they were referring to making sequels to all of their movies, yes. James Franco throws away, let's not make a Your Highness 2, <laughs> yeah. which is funny because that movie, which I loved, I thought is, it was pretty uh, good. is uh, critically panned generally. Yeah. You know, not well loved. It's not a great movie. But yeah. yeah, it's, it's, yeah. it's fine, but that would, that's so funny to me. Yeah. And, uh, so the act two of this movie, this is what I want to talk about. What's interesting is act one, uh, is great because it's just at the party, right? Mm-hmm. So you get to have all this fun with all the cameos and sort of like making jokes about each other. Uh, and then act three is sort of, and we'll get to that, is it's sort of the culmination of what's actually happening in the movie. Mm-hmm. They don't really deal with a lot of what's happening outside of the house through act two. Mm-hmm. Act three is when we get into what's actually happening outside and sort of the well, ending. Act two is what the sells them on, oh shit, this is big. Act yeah, two, what's interesting to me is it almost plays like a bunch of SNL sketches. Mm-hmm. It's just a bunch of like, if we were all trapped in a house together... What would happen? Mm-hmm. It's the Trapped in the Closet episode. Trapped in the Closet episode. And it, and it really is just a montage of things mm. that happen to them. But what's funny to me about it is I tend to, in comedies, get really bored with Act 2 because they sort of set up, like, a lot of Act 2 is just like, um, uh, I like to call them the, the third act misunderstandings. Yes, yes. Act 2 is full of the just... The Ben Stiller effect. Exactly. Yeah. Just full of, like, 
oh, if I would have just said this to this character, they'd know that it actually isn't as big a deal as everybody's making, and that's sort of what happens in Act 3. They just sort of create problems to have to solve by the end mm-hmm. of the movie. That's what Act 2 is about. And I think it also grows their relationship as a group, which this is really good application of their style of humor. Oh, um, yeah. They, they seem to operate on a bare, uh, not a bare-bones script, but a, a skeletonish script yeah. where they can have their real conversations back and forth. Right. And this is a beautiful playground to have those argumentative, mumblecore conversations, yes. but done in a way that because this is about their friendship, it does serve the plot. Yes. And so we've created this backdrop of the end of the world to have them have these conversations. Exactly. And it's, it's silly. I mean, it, down to well, an argument over a porno mag. Yes. And it's, it's and one of I don't want to spoil the movie. it. Could, could never spoil that for yeah. you. But, you know, it's the kind of thing where you could see that argument happening in any one of their movies. Yes. But the fact that this trite little argument is existing because of the biblical fucking apocalypse yes. is just so explosive. It's so funny. It's great. Well, and the point I was going to make is this second act doesn't rely on those like misunderstandings or whatever. This second act really actually does, because like you said, all of this is built in the tension of these, these crumbling relationships. Mm. Because of that, the second act actually services the plot line in a, in a, uh, a really interesting way, as opposed mm. to just feeling like, oh, they're just setting up a bunch of stuff so that they can solve a bunch of stuff. Mm. They set that up at the end of Act One, mm-hmm. the, this unsolvable apocalypse. You oh, know what yeah. I mean? So all it does is it, uh, the second act serves to build this plot line of the problem of the crumbling relationships. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they, they end up like what could just feel like a bunch of just like sewn together sketches feel like a plot line mm-hmm. because they all rely on this emotional undercurrent for and this crumbling each friendship. Each one feeds like a different thing. Exactly. Um, I know uh, Seth Ro- uh, James Franco is kind of hiding food yes. and keeping Seth Rogen in it. Like we're a team. Yeah. And Seth Rogen is faced with the, do I tell the guys this or do I act selfishly? Right. And all these little things create those good conversations. But oh, yeah. it shows that even amongst these four good friends and the one outsider, the four good friends are crumbling. And um, even the outsider starts to forge some friendships. Yes. And everyone, in a way, finds a way to turn their back on someone else in a way that's very understandable. Mm-hmm. But then when shown against this backdrop of this huge crumbling relationship are heavy things. Yeah. And to have them dealing with these heavy personal issues as well as what eventually becomes this wickedly adventurous sci-fi romp, yeah. it weighs nicely. Yeah. And it's, it's beautiful. And when we finally do get to the third act yeah. where it is full-on sci-fi, all of those things... All of those things... Am I coming up? All of those things... Uh, <laughs> producers giving me talking notes. All of those things that we saw in act two are now given a reason to exist. Yes. And it plays into that last act. And so the, do you want to get into the last act? I feel, cause the what sec- kind of time are we on? We're, we're, we're working close. Well, because I feel like the second act, I don't want to spoil too much for How people. Exactly? I know a lot of this is very spoilery, but I, I don't want to give too much of the second act away because mm. it's where the meat of, I think, a lot of the jokes are. And that's where a lot of the fun is to be yeah, had. Yeah, But that's what's beautiful about this movie is being that it's so well-written, when that plot does kick in and it's time now to deal with what comes with the biblical apocalypse. Yes. Slaughter, mayhem, fire, volcanoes, monsters. Now we have these characters that are all feeling different types of torn up. Yeah. And uh, this, is, this is their redemption, potentially. I would say what drives them from the second to the third act is probably, uh, and we'll call this kind of a spoiler, but it is in the commercials, the possession of Jonah Hill. Yes. That's what drives us. That's sort of the end of the second act that drives us into Which, the third act. That's one of those things that if this was a movie that just went with... You know, cameos and in jokes. Yes. The way they show the possession would have been impossible to do. 
And they did it in a way that is equal parts scary and just complete slapstick yes. ridiculousness. Yes. And this is where Jonah Hill shines because oh, yeah. now this is Jonah Hill not playing Jonah Hill. No. He has to play a character. But it is in a way, I mean, he is possessed. Yes. So you're seeing your exorcist tropes where a demon is speaking through someone's body, but it's still so informed by Jonah Hill yes. that it's, it's just hilarious. It, it's, it's really well done, and, and sort of what I like about it, one of my favorite things about that scene is once they get to the point where they're really doing an exorcist scene, where they, they have him strapped to the bed. Oh, yeah. Uh, they're literally quoting the exorcist. They're literally yeah. quoting the exorcist. Jay is standing on a bed going, the power of Christ compels you. And you get a great joke out of that. Yes, I don't want to spoil it. I, I don't either. You get so a great bad. joke out of that. But then in the middle of that, right in the middle of it, uh, it suddenly turns back into Rogan and Jay mm. arguing about their crumbling friendship again. And like, it's natural, too. And it's, it's totally natural thing. to the scene. And then Franco comes in, and he's like, are we really having this argument now? So again, we balance all three things. We're in the midst of a joke. In the midst of that joke, we bring up this crumbling relationship between Jay and Seth. And then in the midst of that argument, Franco comes in to go like, guys, the apocalypse is still happening. Yeah. Like, are we really, do we really need to still that's be talking about this? That's kind of the moment this? where they start. And it's because that's the moment where it gets to the point where you're like, oh, this is a ridiculous movie. Yeah. But when it, it takes that ridiculousness for these celebrities to start going, this might be something to contend with. Yeah. You know, this might be. They're all barely even affected by Jonah Hill's possession. No. You know, at first. And then it's the reactions to that that cause them to realize, like, we might have a little bit more on our plates. We than have we a thought. problem on our hands. And they, what's interesting is I just realized this thinking about it. Uh, they don't really come into contact with the apocalypse until they invoke God. Yes. No one in the movie ever really, other than Jay, who's kind of reading the Bible and talking mm. a little bit about it. Uh, no one really invokes God. No one ever talks to God. No one ever reduces themselves to mm. like trying to pray or anything like that. Not even Jay, who's convinced that actually, is actually what's when happening. When Jonah reduces to praying, that's, that's what turns it. Exa- that's uh, what I'm saying. Uh. It's not until someone actually invokes God and decides maybe this is actually what's happening that suddenly they get involved with what is happening, mm-hmm. uh, which I think is kind of interesting mm-hmm. because the, the movie does eventually suppose that there is redemption to be had mm. once the apocalypse begins. And I think that's what f- really fuels the third act yes. is now that they're all at this point where they realize maybe they're not all going to survive. Right. Um, it's this adventure into the underworld, essentially, is their ticket to redemption. Yes. So in a way, they're starting to realize like, hey, you know, we have to deal with this, but yes. perhaps if we do, it could be the undoing of all of the bad that we've done. Yeah. Uh, well, which leads to an awesome monologue from Craig Robinson oh, that is yeah. equal parts disturbing, meaningful, and laugh-out-loud hilarious. Yes. Like, really, really hilarious stuff, but it, it does get real in a way. It's, it's weird. And I don't want to get too much into that conversation, but the way that conversation starts that I really, really liked and I think uh, is the only time they really talk about what is actually interesting about the plot line they're telling. They try very hard to avoid talking about religion or, or God or anything. I mean, all those things clearly exist in, in mm-hmm. this movie, but they don't talk about them a lot at one point rogan goes i mean god exists Did anybody see that shit coming uh which is <laughs> that's a like really my reaction exactly the yeah i'm like oh, i ran my mouth too much on yeah. stage fuck <laughs> uh and, and that's where suddenly you do start to realize like oh they're telling an interesting story here like what are we all doing mm-hmm. you know like is it okay for us to exist in this the like are we all just pretending that these things mm-hmm. don't exist around us that there is no defined morality Mm. you know are we all just pretending that do we all actually know somewhere that there is a defined morality and we're just pretending it doesn't exist because we've advanced enough as a species to go beyond it and i think the question raises too where they they're asking like you know is it 
is it a, you know, like we, we live these lives that we live yes. and is this what, you know, is this what condemned us to this? Right. And are we doing these redemptive acts simply because we want to be good or is it because now we want to be saved? Right. Well, Which is a huge ethical, I mean, as someone who frequently argues with religious people because I'm a dick like that, that's one of my points is I always say like, when I do good, it's just because I want to. Right. I can't think of anything purer than that. Right. You know, it doesn't need to be informed by a fear of, of condemnation. And what I like is that their condemnation is already existing. And yes. now they're, they're trying to gain redemption through it. But it's still, is it for selfish means? And that's such a deep concept. And what's really funny is, uh, I pointed this out to you early in the movie, and you brought this up earlier, uh, um, uh, Franco is obsessed. He's, he's talking to, to, to Rogan. And Franco is obsessed with the idea that he, at the end of Pineapple Express 2, his character would sacrifice himself mm-hmm. for Rogan. So very early on in the movie, they introduced the idea of self-sacrifice. Mm-hmm. And it seems like all of these people are sort of obsessed with the idea that they could be good. Yes. That that is inside of them and somewhere. That, that they want to... goes into creating their image. Exactly. You know, that it's they, not necessarily good. And that they want to be good. They, mm. they have this desire to take what their talents are and what they're doing and use them for good. They mm. all want to sacrifice themselves for some greater ideal. It's almost like they weren't given the tools to be purely good. Right. Because they've been raised in the society of... Of their worship, right? You know, they, they have that idols. concept, and they know that that concept is good, mm-hmm. but they don't know how to enact it. Mm-hmm. None of them know how to participate in in that goodness or that morality, that self sacrifice. I think that struggle is what makes it so accessible. That's what keeps it from being what a lot of people were afraid of, of just auto fellatio yes. by the Hollywood elite, because it's them asking the questions that that your celebrity bloggers will ask. Yes, but luckily, this group of celebrities all seem to be pretty much above reproach in terms of behavior. They right. are legit artists, right? You know, they, yeah, they smoke pot, yeah, they party, but who doesn't? Right. And um, it's one of those things where I feel like. Even even at the beginning, when you said someone says, "Hey, Seth Rogen," Seth Rogen's reaction isn't that of a typical celebrity. He just kind of waves, like, "Oh, hey," you know, yeah, and yeah. just moves on. You know, he doesn't want to be a celebrity, right. but he doesn't want to be a dick. Right. And oftentimes, I've found we judge celebrities harshly for that. Yes. Um, I saw someone say to Don Cheadle on Twitter, like, "Oh, I saw you at the airport. You didn't stop and take pictures. What the heck?" And Don Cheadle responded. He said, "Hey, man, listen. You know, it's it's one of those." Uh, you know, it was nothing personal, but I do reserve the right to just go about my night. Yeah. You know, but it was nothing personal. You know, I would love to get a picture with you, but you get off a plane. Sometimes you just want to go home. Mm. I can understand that more than anybody. Hell yeah. And uh, that's got to be such a fine line for a celebrity to walk. And this movie comes out as a way of a love letter of saying, like, yes, we are different. Mm-hmm. But it's more our circumstances than our personalities that make us that way. Right, right. And that's such a beautiful concept. And it makes it fun to hang out with these characters mm-hmm. because they are higher up than us on the social scale. Yeah. But I know I could sit in a room with Seth Rogen, smoke some weed, and throw some jokes around. We'd probably have a grand old time. Yeah, yeah. You know, if the opportunity presented itself. Yeah, he feels like your friend. So I want to. I think we should probably get to the point of wrapping this up. So yeah, let's yeah. talk about the third act, and I, I want to talk about it a little loosely because again, mm. I, this movie I feel like is worth not spoiling too Absolutely. much for people. There is a lot about that reveal, the reveals that happen. Yeah, the third act is just full of reveals of like what is actually happening in this world. What is this mm. story that they're telling? And at this point, we're all pretty convinced it's the biblical apocalypse, but it mm. makes that very clear at the end. And I think it's cool. You have this... It is scary. There are, yes. and like, this is just an example. There are, you know, supernatural things going on, but a lot of, you know, 
there's also dick jokes. Yes. And so it does play heavily. It is fun. It's very cartoony, but there are a couple scenes that are generally intense and scary. Yes. But very funny at the same time, oh, yeah. which and is, they, to me, impossible line to walk, and they do it flawlessly. And they put a lot of their money on the screen in the third act. Mm-hmm. And, and I, it looks good. I truly think the, the ending to this movie is one of the crazier endings I've seen, period. Absolutely. Like, when you watch it and actually see what they're doing and how they're doing it with what look like good effects, but clearly, like, cheap effects, mm. if that makes sense, they look... I think they're cheap in a way that um, an older movie exactly. would be cheap, exactly. but still effective. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Know, I find effective. them very effective. But what I like is they they have a the the uh they're lucky that because this is such a fantastical idea it doesn't have to look real right but it just has to look believable and the yes. world that they've built it is believable yes you know if if a if Seth Rogen were to draw a picture of the biblical apocalypse, yeah. there would be boners. Yes, but yes. it's also, you know, it is a very real thing happening. Yeah. It's funny. It's oh, very it's funny. funny. I, I thought the movie was hysterical. And I, I just to, to cap it, the third act is we, we get the idea that maybe there is some redemption in this world. Mm. And then we watch these characters decide whether redemption is something that they want or not. Essentially. Whether it's something that they deserve. Too. Right, yeah. Because... You know, you definitely have one character who just irredeemable. Mm. One, one character irredeemable and gleefully so. Gleefully irredeemable. Loves it. Hilariously aspect. irredeemable. Guess who? Yeah. Uh, then you have another character who uh, genuinely wants to be redeemed. I mean, he's the character that that in the beginning sets up this idea of sacrificing mm. yourself. Genuinely wants to be redeemed. But maybe is too selfish. To Absolutely. Be, maybe is irredeemable because he is too selfish to really be redeemed. Mm. Uh, and and then um, you know you have the remainder of the characters who do make a sacrifice, mm. uh, and and in doing so are redeemed. And uh, I do like there was attempts at sacrifice yes. that were all eliminated by the soft shell of the celebrity. Exactly. You know, it's it's. Uh, I, I I think of it in terms of like. You know, I, I grew up, my dog that I had growing up is like a hunting dog and all that, but he's so softened by the domestic life that when you unleash him out in the wild and have him, you know, reacting to other animals, yeah. he looks like this sloppy cartoon version of a hunter. Yeah. So we have these celebrities that have lived their whole life in, you know, silver spoon up the ass, unleashed in this real circumstance, and they don't know how to play it, despite, you know, instinctually being good. Yeah. Their skills are, are softened by it. You know, Seth Rogen, even though he is such a believable good guy, he does a couple things that are straight up dick moves. Yeah. But they're informed by the script well enough that you you do understand. Yeah. And it's that's that's I mean, if there's a, a thesis for this episode, I think that could be it. You yeah. Know, it's this this is a this is a full movie. It is not just a playground. It's no. an actual plot. Yeah. And they, they tell the story well, they wrap it up really nicely at the end. I mean, the point of the movie at the end is is be good to each other. Mm. Uh, and that's, I mean, that sounds simple and dumb be after. Excellent to each yeah, other. Yeah, it sounds simple and dumb after having this whole long conversation it about weight, it. But though. it really, the way they tell the story, it really carries weight. Mm. Uh, and that, uh, it, it's a movie movie. It is know? a movie movie. They, they, they put a lot of their money on the screen in really interesting ways. The directing, really quick, is like actually very interesting. They make some very fun choices it's not uh, just a camera being pointed at no. a script they make some really fun filmmaking it is choices. exciting it is kinetic and, and i think it does exist in a post scott pilgrim world totally um it's i i would say it is very influenced by Edgar yeah. right of course he's related to them in some way yeah but i i like this new form of cinema where it's not just a you know star wars prequels blue screen with actors in front of it right it is exciting live filmmaking it is the command of actors and the command of camera, but then using the tools at your disposal to enhance it. Yes. You know, and it's, 
It's beautiful use of the genre. Yes. It's, and I it's, went in expecting middling, and I got what I think is my favorite movie thus far of absolutely. It is it is excellent storytelling through character. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's something we'll probably talk about a lot on this show. Absolutely, uh, a lot of the movies we'll talk about. We talked about The Shining already. It's excellent storytelling through character. Absolutely, uh, and uh, you know I think that is one of the things that truly makes a good movie. But what makes a movie movie? is they tell a story through character and they tell it in a way that you could only see on the screen. This, this movie is an awful book. It would not exist anywhere else other mm. than on the screen. It couldn't be anything. It might be able to be a decent comic book. Right, right, yeah. <laughs> but then you, but you wouldn't the have the joy of the yeah. celebrities. Yep, it's, it, it will only exist on the screen. I like watching our celebrities panic. Yeah, Because we yes. never get to see it. Yeah. We get to see them sit around at the beach drinking margaritas and fucking supermodels. We get to watch them panic in the most real and just... It's the fucking end of the world. That yeah. is the most intense panic you can have. It's genuine. Mm-hmm. Beautiful movie. Yeah, I think I'm uh, ready to call it on this yeah, episode. Yeah, I think we should it's, call uh, it This yeah. is the End is in theaters. Yes. And um, you should check it out. I it's totally recommend seeing this movie. And if you can get there in a crowd that's packed, it's even better because it's definitely a party movie. Uh, and this is f- going to grow cult-wise when you get to watch it at home. Absolutely. And yeah. I, seeing it twice totally holds up the second time. Nice. This movie is worthwhile. I bet so. it improves the second time, It too. really does. There's a lot of stuff you don't pick. Like I told you, I picked up on one of my favorite visual gags is there's a, in that scene we were talking about where they're going to the convenience store. Mm. There's there's a billboard that you can see advertising a movie called Ninja Rapist. <laughs> so there's not a nook or cranny in this yeah. movie that couldn't be filled with a joke that yeah, isn't. Yeah. It's all filled. Yeah. It's beautiful. Uh, so uh, I think for this week, my name's Garrett Smith. I'm Dan Scully. I like to movie movie. I like to movie movie. You like to movie movie. We like to movie. This has been a Roadside Network podcast produced by Mike Bauer. For more podcasts, go to roadsidenetwork.com.